Hello and welcome to episode five of Confessions from the Witness Box, where I'm very lucky to be joined this month by David Rodison. So hello and welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this particular episode. Just before we were chatting, before we started, you said how you were born in Birmingham. That's right. Yes, in the very house that I'm speaking from now. So whereabouts in Birmingham are you, actually? It's a district called Moseley, which if you're a rugby fan, you might have heard of the Moseley Rugby Football Club. And then from Moseley, you then progressed to Bath University. That's correct. So back in the 1980s, when I went to university, very few building services engineers had degrees. And there were only five courses that did building services engineering in an accredited degree by by SIBSI. And the Bath course was quite unusual in that it was a multidisciplinary degree incorporating architects, civil and structural engineers and building services, uh, really spearheaded by Professor um, Ted Happold, who founded Bureau Happold, because he felt there was far too many silos within the building industry. And the intention was that if you train these people at a young age together, then they will hopefully work better in their careers. Did that ever work? Have you found that people do now work better in their careers? Because I've always found that one of the problems construction suffers from is that there's always a tension between the different disciplines and sometimes tension where there shouldn't really be tension. So do do you think the theory of training people together did aid at removing that or...? Well, certainly it, it helped me because I could see when I wanted to bring my large thousand millimeter diameter ducts across a floor plate, uh, that might cause some problems for the structural engineer and uh, the architect might want to have them concealed above some sort of four ceiling. But uh, I think it was overall a very, very good start in in, uh, in the construction industry. But the, the other thing, of course, that Bath University is always most famous for is that there's quite a large hill. Yes, which always seems to be on, after a night out, getting back to the university halls, always seems much larger than it should be. It, it is. It's a long way to walk up. Um, at one point, well, for my second, third and fourth year, I lived in a lovely village called Monkton Coombe, just outside Bath. And, uh, and I had a cycle ride up a very steep hill called Brassknocker Hill, which uh, meant that I always arrived at the university in wintertime, very nicely warmed up. <laughs> Although, sadly, probably in summertime, very sweaty. Uh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I, I do remember one occasion of um, cycling back on, on a Friday evening um, down into the valley and it was just bathed in moonlight. And it was one of the most beautiful uh, scenes I've ever seen with the stars in the sky. Absolutely stunning. Because Bath is an absolutely stunning city and with all the history in Bath and the layout and the rural crescent, it is an absolutely stunning city to, to live in and, and to, probably to study in as well. Well, quite. And I must say, I found it uplifting just to walk through the the city past the Royal Crescent and into the circus and so forth. And I think that's one thing that showed me that architecture can be really uplifting and really benefit the quality of life of people who live somewhere. And I think when I look at the quality of buildings that have been produced since the 1980s, I think the quality of architecture in many cases is a lot better than it used to be. There's a lot more thought given to construction. Um, Residential units seem to perhaps mirror the character of the the nearby houses better. They're not just blocks, rectangular blocks. So I I think it's good to see those characteristics coming into the modern day construction. But also when it comes to the design influencing people's lives and how people live and use the space, of course, not that far from Bath was the um, experimental 
villages. Panbury. Yes, Panbury, that's it. Which I think very much was trying to imbibe that kind of ethos of how can we use architecture to improve the lives of the people that live there rather than just being a building. Sure, and I remember one of our history of architecture lectures, they talked about in the old days, you'd have a, a village or a town and the people would live above the shops. So in the evenings, there were still people around. Whereas if we build city centres where you've only got shops and offices and no resi in the area, in, in the evenings, they're, they're empty and become a mecca for um, you know, vandalism and bad behaviour. So I think there's a lot to be said about how you plan the different uses of the accommodation so that you maintain 24 hour use, you know, have your residences near to your public transport hubs and so forth. And I think um, with the, the, this pandemic, we're going to see a change in, in how people both live and work. I do entirely agree with you that I think there's been a real realisation for people that during the pandemic, we can work remotely. And um, Whereas in the past, there's often been a kind of a nervousness that people will sit at home and and eat biscuits and watch tv actually we don't work so it has to be done and most people are conscientious and want to do a good job quite i think it's going to provide benefits potentially at every level if you're not commuting to work five days a week but now only going say three days a week uh, that means that the company only needs an office that's 60 percent of the size so you've got an immediate saving in overhead uh, you've got fewer people taking the trains and travelling on the roads, so you need to spend less on infrastructure. You've got less pollution. You've got parents who can be home for when their children get back from school or in for when the workman needs to come. I, I can see it's, it, it'll help women get back to work, perhaps, because they, they um, don't have to be at work five days a week. I think for people who um, struggle to be in an office five days a week with long commutes it'll it'll be very very good and also i think it opens up the possibility to work work nominally in central london for people who live much farther out which helps to share out some of the, the london wealth across the rest of the country yes very much so and also now with hs2 linking into birmingham and and it's so easy to get from birmingham to london and to actually connect to different regions throughout the country so it is. And I, I regularly talk to the taxi drivers when I, I get the cab from my um, my dad's house to the station and back and speaking to the cab drivers who you know, know about these things. They're, they're saying that lots of the resi units that have been uh, built recently in the centre of Birmingham have been bought up by people who work in London. So yeah. they'll they'll work from Birmingham a couple of days a week and do a three day commute to to London on the train. So just coming back onto your career, because we, we've, we've diverged very early on today into, into the theory of, uh, of urban planning. Um, but your father was a QS, which I find interesting because my father was also a QS. That's how I started in the, um, in the industry and that I actually worked. I was very lucky to have worked with my father for um, sort of 18 years before he retired. So did that have an influence in your decision to go into construction and, and this industry? Yeah, I think uh, like most boys and girls who get to the age of 16, 17, 18 are thinking of a career, um, their expectations are quite limited to the extent that their parents have um, experienced life. And certainly it was the case back then, you know, without the internet and you haven't got as many television programs that show all these interesting careers. So my, my dad, uh, as I mentioned, was a, a quantity surveyor. Um, he was a partner in a film firm called Silk and Frazier who were one of the, the Birmingham QSing firms. Um, my uncle was an architect. He trained in the UK and then um, after a time in the RAF in the Second World War, settled in the States and set his own architectural practice up there. 
So there was a bias immediately towards construction. And as my dad said, he said, there'd always be work in construction. So you'll always have a job, which, you know, coming out of the 1970s um, as a child, when there was quite high unemployment and into perhaps the 80s, uh, an industry with uh, a fairly stable employment prospect seemed like a good uh, idea. Although you say that, but very shortly after you commenced your career, which you commenced in Bristol, you found yourself in the UK first, well, the, the 1990 recession in the UK, which meant that you left the UK and went overseas to find employment. Well, that, that's quite right. And that, that the change seemed to happen overnight. So in the late 80s, it seemed that uh, every year as a student engineer or graduate engineer, as I was then, you'd get a, a 10% pay rise and the only way was up. Um, and then in about 1991, we were called in and told we were going to get a 10% pay cut, <laughs> which, which seemed to me to be uh, not a great way forward. But it was a way that the company was trying to retain staff. And you know, having seen how firms have coped in this current pandemic, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for, for reducing salaries overall rather than shedding staff, um, hopefully with the intention that those salaries can either be um, paid back the what's been taken off or, or reinstated as soon as possible so you know and I think that's one of the things as you go through life you sit the other side of the table yes um, and I can completely understand why the partners of RW Gregory and partners who are the firm that I worked with uh, had to do that to really maintain the integrity of the firm but as you say yes so um, that there wasn't any work left in Bristol and um, I, I'd expressed an interest to the senior partner some months before that I'd like to work in Hong Kong if ever the opportunity arose and they came back to me and said, yes, we'd like to send you to Hong Kong. So off I went. And, and from the time in Hong Kong, it, it, I understand that it was, you did so much beyond just the engineering and, and construction. Uh, you spent time in traveling through China. You learned to scuba dive. Um, and then you got involved with um, a, a charity, I, I, I assume, um, helping drug addicts and uh, street sleepers. Uh, quite a busy time for you then when you went to Hong Kong. It, it was, and we only got 15 days uh, holiday plus public holidays. So um, a lot of it was done in the evenings and, and weekends. But I think China in those days, so I was there from 1992 to 1994, was in a real state of uh, flux and development. The, the first time I went, um, really all the people were going around on bicycles in the places I went to. Um, but even in the space of a year or two years, there were small motorbikes appearing and, and you could just see the pace of change. And of course, when I went just before the Beijing Olympics, uh, you've got these massive highways and skyscrapers. It's just phenomenal what China's achieved in that period. And but so coming back onto the other activities, so supporting drug addicts and street sleepers, how did you get involved with that? That's that seems quite a, a change from the day job of sure. engineering and, and construction. Well, ever since I've been at university, I've been going to a, a church in Bath. And so when I went to go out to Hong Kong, I wanted to find a church to go to. And there's a lady called Jackie Pullinger, who left UK in the 1960s and went to Hong Kong, really to work with uh, the triad members who are the gangsters and the street poor. And I just thought to myself, that would be a really interesting perspective to have on life. So I spent some of my evenings and weekends working with the, the drug addicts as they came off drugs and delivering rice boxes to the street sleepers under the flyovers. 
And, and I think seeing people from such a different culture, and you've got to remember back in the 1990s, there was no email. You know, Hong Kong seemed a very long way away from Britain. Yep. It was it was really illuminating to just get to see what other people's lives are like. And, and I think I didn't have the typical expat existence there. You know, many people go out and quite understandably, they, they join a nice club and they um, uh, yeah, mix with other Westerners. Um, but, but I was able to have a, a real insight into some of the local local people. So just going back briefly, back, back to your career. So after you left Hong Kong, you came back to the UK. And at this point, you st- you still haven't moved into expert witness work yet. You're still actually engaged in live projects as a, as, as we would now describe you, as, as an MEP engineer, but back then a, a M&E engineer, so mechanical and electrical. That's right. So at what point, what triggered the move to go from being actual an engineer to being an expert? Sure. Well, the seed was sown actually back in one of my university placements at RW Gregory back in the 80s. And I was, uh, at that time, thermal comfort was one of the big topics in the industry. And there was a gentleman called, called Professor Fanger who pioneered research into a comfort index which lumped together temperature, air velocity, humidity, activity level, and clothing level, and then would predict the the number of people that would be dissatisfied in an environment. And Birmingham office of RW Gregory had what they called a comfort meter, which was a a, a box with some electronics in and various sensors that stuck out of it. And you could turn some dials to dial in the, the clothing amount and the activity level and so forth. And it would give you a readout of the percentage of people dissatisfied. In your office, you had a comfort level meter. Correct. On an average day, how many people would have been dissatisfied with your office? <laughs> I don't know. We didn't have it switched on. We didn't have it switched on. But you see, the office that we were in on 123 Hagley Road, which was a great place to work, it was um, single glazed. You could open the windows. You had lots of control. I think a lot of the issue with thermal comfort is not having control of your environment um, rather than necessarily the specific temperature. But uh, no, the, the thermal comfort meter wasn't brought out to um, test the management <laughs> for changes in conditions. But I, I was fascinated as a you know, young graduate or yep. student in those days by this, this meter and the way it could predict the um, uh, percentage dissatisfied. So, so Jeffrey Gosnell wanted um, somebody to come down. So I, I really came as the courier of the meter. And uh, all I had to do was switch, switch dials and things and write down the figures. But that gave me an introduction to Jeff, who um, was a partner of R.W. Gregory. And then in sort of 1997, 1998, that sort of time, he was looking for an assistant um, to help him with expert work because he did quite a lot of that. And that coincided with me beginning to feel somewhat disillusioned with engineering um, after the 1991 recession. And I don't know if it's the same for QSs, but certainly for engineers, we were bidding at 50% below ACE pay scales. Um, the, the fees had been cut dramatically since the early 90s and late 80s. And clients still wanted to do, still wanted us to do the same amount of work. Uh, also, there was an advent of much more design and build where you were just a sub-consultant to a contractor. And, and I, just, I just felt that whereas before the, um, the 91 recession, You'd be in an office, you'd be paid overtime, time and time and the third in the in the week and time and a half at weekends, and there was plenty of time to do a job. Now there was no overtime, there was not enough time to do a proper job. 
And it just seems the whole industry was becoming far more adversarial. So I was actually looking at retraining altogether. I remember sitting down with a copy, a copy of What Colour Is Your Parachute? and um, getting into the first chapter about seeing how skills were transferable to other industries. Uh, and I was quite keen because I was back in sort of sharing between Bath and Birmingham in those days of getting involved in agriculture. So I was looking at possibly going to agricultural college when um, Geoffrey Gosnell happened to mention he would need an assistant for a bit of time and would I like to give it a go? So I started as being his assistant. I say that I keep regularly after after a bad week going, Mark, you know what we should really do? We should just like buy a vineyard and, and get, get into making wine. That seems a far better career than this caressing malarkey. Um. <laughs> well, it's very interesting you say that to me because uh, although I didn't put it on the notes I sent to you, one of my dreams is to have my own vineyard. If you want good good stuff in this country for a vineyard, then you have to come further south than Birmingham at the moment. You, you want the chalk downs with the south-facing hills. Absolutely. No, it, from nine, from 2002 to um, about 2006, um, I, I had a, a house in Bath with a really nice garden that I, I inherited. It wasn't big. It was what, 90 foot long by 30 foot wide. Yep. It certainly wasn't big, but it had been looked after lovingly by the people before. And um, a lady from church, her husband had just retired and he was very good at gardening. So he had come on a Monday afternoon for a couple of hours to show me what to do, you know, how to how to sow the peas and the beans and how to plant the potatoes and whatever it might be. So when, when I was working from the house um, and, and I had a, a spare hour, so I'd go out with him. And, you know, like so many things in life, being shown how to do something by someone that really knows what they're doing and has a passion for it has has a massive impact. And that gave me a real desire to, um, to to get into sort of again horticulture, and so I say yes. One day I'd like to own a little vineyard that I tend the vines myself and uh, get the grapes shipped off to cooperative, and it probably won't be very drinkable, but um, who knows? <laughs> Absolutely, definitely. Um, so you went from being an assistant uh, to an expert, as as we all kind of start out, and, and, and you learn, you kind of learn the ropes really under somebody else, which I think is the only way to really do it. Uh, so at what point did you then move across to actually taking on the role of being um, an expert yourself? Okay, so Jeff and I worked together from 1999 to 2002. Um, and during the process of that period, he progressively gave me more work to do and more involvement. And it was towards the end of that period, so around, I'd say, 2002, that I started to take on my first couple of projects. Um, the first was a house in, um, in the home, home counties, where they'd had uh, some cowboy builders in who had really made a mess of the uh, the heating and the ventilation and so forth and the hot and cold water. So I remember doing a photographic survey on that and cross-referring it all to British standards and so forth. And then um, I think my second project was a, a boutique hotel on the South Bank, just, um, just south of St. Paul's, yeah. which was, again, a very interesting project. And then, unfortunately, Jeff had to retire uh, quite suddenly um, because of a family matter. Um, and um, so he managed to, through some contacts, get me a job at White Young Green. And they were quite keen to set up a, uh, a disputes team. So I worked with them from 2002 to, to 2006, gradually building up my practice from the contacts that Jeff had, uh, had lent me, so to speak. And then in 2006, uh, someone who you probably know called David Barry. Of course, Mr. Barry from BlackRock. Uh, indeed. So I think at those days, he had just sold Precept, which was yep. his, uh, his business to Navigant. And they had a very successful construction disputes department uh, in which they did quantum and programming. 
but he wanted somebody to set up a, uh, what they called a standard of performance team that had engineers and architects. Um, he had been giving evidence in, in a court hearing that I'd also been involved in the TCC in London, and he asked if I'd be interested. And I think at the time, I, I just thought, yes, please. So I moved to Navigant, and that was such an exciting period in my, in my career. And Navigant was, um, it was growing rapidly. They seemed to be hoovering up experts from all the different consultancies. Uh, there was a very young team, lots of you know, young, thrusting, uh, eager young people who were very bright, um, and then me. And um, it was just a wonderful place to live, uh, to work, and live, actually. That was a Freudian slip. I was in the office <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> and then, but despite the fact, you left Navigant, or as it's now called, Ancora, and, and went out on your own. Indeed. So in 2009, after the GFC, I think uh, Navigant being an American corporation had to tighten its belts. And our um, engineering team didn't really fit the business model of Navigant. So, so, so Navigant and other such management consultants really like a highly leveraged business model where you've got a principal and lots of assistants. Whereas certainly my experience of um, M&E expert work is because you're offering an opinion on a design or a project. I've always struggled to have a lot of assistance without becoming so distant from the, the work itself that I haven't got the right grasp of it. So um, we, we, we went effectively the right business model to fit with Navigant and I saw that. And so at the time as well, I thought, well, uh, I, I use what I call the rocking chair test. When I imagine myself in my rocking chair in my 80s, if I, if I live that long, just reflecting on my life. And I think, what will I regret? So I thought, well, my dad was a partner in a QSE firm. My uncle had his own architectural practice. Having your own business is very much in, in the family DNA. And I thought, well, what's the worst that can possibly go wrong? And the answer I felt was, well, I'll end up working for another firm. And also I didn't believe that any other firm could be better than Navigant because it was such a great place to work. So it seemed like a an obvious choice to have a go at setting up my own practice and just see how it went and that was 2009. Um, so then coming back into your experience of actually doing the job as a testifying expert I like the fact that unlike so many other people we speak to you're you're a big fan of hot tubbing. Yes I think it's great um, really when you're in a traditional arbitration or in court and your opposite number is being cross-examined and, and you think they say something that's either wrong or only part of the story, the best you can do is to scribble a post-it note and pass it to the junior counsel who passes it to the senior counsel who can so it works on. And, and by that time, the moment's sometimes gone. And also, you know, counsel are incredibly uh, articulate and incredibly bright, but it's difficult for them perhaps to completely understand the technical point on, on the hoof. So I think the benefit is that if you're in a hot tub, and I've done this on a number of occasions, particularly in international arbitrations, is that uh, the tribunal or council can ask a question of your counterpart, they can give their answer, and then you can say why you disagree. And then the counterpart has another opportunity to, to, to reply and say why they disagree with what, what I'm saying. And to my mind, that, that, that provides a much better way for the tribunal to see the issue in the round. I completely understand that council don't like to lose control um, of what the experts say, but you know, from my perspective uh, as an expert, wanting the truth to out, so to speak, I think it's a very efficient method for doing so. I think my concern sometimes with hot tubbing is kind of twofold. 
if if you have two people that speak the same language, it is very easy to very quickly delve into the detail at a point when nobody else has a clue what you're talking about. And you can jump into the minutiae of a particular point and, and your point actually, whilst being particularly valid, suddenly gets lost because you've just gone to a level of detail which no one actually cares about. I think the other concern I was have with hot tubbing is that where you get into a um, impassioned debate with your with your counterpart is that it's maintaining that borderline where you don't start becoming an advocate and what you are doing is just reaffirming your opinion rather than actually starting to advance a position. Yeah, and those are completely valid concerns. I, I understand that. Um, I think another advantage, and this was in the TCC in Manchester, we had a, a, a quartet of us in the hot tub. There were two uh, M&E experts and two quantum experts. And, and what that meant was that the, the, the judge could ask a question on liability to the MEP experts, M&E experts. They, they would then give a view and immediately he could turn to the quantum expert and say, well, how is this going to affect your quantum? So it just made the whole process move so smoothly, in in my in my view. Yes, yeah, I, I, I completely, I completely. I think when you have those kind of mixed disciplinary witnesses and you can actually link it together, then very much so. Item which is always incumbent upon us as experts, and it's always has to be done with sensitivity and and care. Of course, is telling the client when what they're trying to advance is just not a good place to be or not a good position to advance and it's so important that we do that early but it's never a a fun thing to have to try and deal with no i completely agree that um it's in everybody's interests in my view both the experts interests and the client and the legal team to identify to the client if they've got a particular issue that isn't strong and needs to be dropped from a claim or they need to reach some commercial settlement um Certainly from the expert's point of view, I think it goes to credibility if you pursue an argument about something that uh, isn't a strong position. And I think it's, it, um, it takes away from the weight of evidence on points that really are strong. So my, my advice to clients, and I've really got no problem in telling them, is I just don't think this particular aspect of the claim is, is a good claim. I think you'd be better off using our resources on a, another aspect. Yes, which I think is always the interesting contrast sometimes, again, come back to quantum, which is it's our job to value what everybody else wants to argue. And it's not ever for us to turn around and say on a point of liability or fact or law that that's not a good point. It's just our job to put a number against it. Yeah. I mean, as a quantum expert, what do you look for in, for example, an M&E expert? It's not a question I've asked a quantum expert before. Perhaps I should have done so many years ago. I, I, I have to say that I, I dread the M&E reports because I struggle so much to understand them. And if you take a delay report, you start with that nice little simple table that says this many days of delay in this window. And sometimes you have to explore it further to understand when, it, when the actual delay was felt. But when you start dealing with uh, technical experts and, and it's the same as some of the geotechnical expert stuff. It's trying to understand what their opinion is in a way that I can apply it to a quantum assessment is hard. And my key thing with the technical experts is needing meetings so I can actually understand at a very simplistic level what what their opinion is and what that actually means. I understand. Due to your very distinguished career, you've given evidence in effectively every form of tribunal between TCC, arbitration and kind of 
everything else around the world and in between. What's your preferred forum? I think, and I remember, I think uh, the answer that Ed Shaw gave to a similar question that you asked him, it very much depends on the facts of the case. That, that, was, that was a perfectly diplomatic answer. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to disagree with the solicitor. No. But I think it's true. I think, I think it's true as well. You know, I, I know there's been, for example, if you consider adjudication, there's been a tendency in, in the, the, the 2010s to, uh, to put some massive disputes through adjudication. And, and we've had... Um, some disputes come to us, which are, you know, tens of issues that are supposed to be resolved by adjudication. And you're thinking this should be done by arbitration or, yep. or some other mechanism. It is not an adjudication matter. So I think for those sorts of matters, um, adjudication isn't isn't appropriate. I, I, I really like arbitration. We're just coming to the end of a, of a month on virtual arbitration um, that the ICC is running on, on a case in the Middle East. And, and I really like the more conversational approach you have in arbitration, um, the way that the tribunal are more, if I can use the word chatty, perhaps, um, than maybe a judge might be in the TCC. It's rather less formal than, than the TCC would be. I think the hard thing with adjudication as an expert, again, one of those things that, that always forms a slight element of fear, is that when you're in adjudication, you're always under a time pressure, particularly if you're the responding party. And you know that the analysis that you've done is not going to be the same level of detail as you would be dealing with it if it was in arbitration or in, in litigation. And there's that concern that it's fine, we're in adjudication, it's private, but what happens if this thing goes into a TCC? Because my report is not a report that I'd want suddenly now being presented as evidence in in a more formal proceeding and it then gets even more work it even gets even harder because of course in in adjudication so often your counterpart is not an expert working to the same rules as you potentially having signed a declaration what you have as a counterpart may be a claims consultant it might be in-house engineer or qs or uh, and therefore you're trying to reply to reply to points that are very much advanced in the case rather than independent opinion you're doing it under a short time pressure. And at some point, this thing could actually be presented in front of a judge. I think that's always that, that balance that you have to strike in adjudication. Absolutely. And it's always much more difficult being uh, the responding party in an adjudication. And indeed, you know, one of the things that Jeff Gosnell said to me, and I agree with him, was that it's always more difficult being the claimant's expert in the first place. I, I, I think, actually, overall, putting to one side adjudication, because the claimant's expert has got to really work out what the case is and articulate it in their report. And then the, the defendant's expert uh, simply has to find holes in it. Yes. So, you know, I, I think it's, it is more difficult being the claimant's expert, apart or, or, from adjudications. Apart from adjudications. But I think there is a trend, though, that even when you're the responding expert now, that parties want you to present an affirmative report rather than just simply picking holes in the other side that's true and and particularly where a client or or, and a respondent may admit that they actually have a liability and they do have um an obligation to pay something or that they're liable for something but they want and as a result of that that it's not just simply picking holes in it they want you to present um an actual independent assessment undertaking yourself yeah and i think also in terms of other formats um i'm a big fan of mediation oh love I it i think um i think i think bringing parties together and yes. getting them to resolve their differences has got to be to everybody's advantage yes uh, in the in, in the 2000s i did a lot of arbitrations uh, sorry mediations on uh, professional indemnity claims when i was doing work for insurers 
uh, and they they were they were really interesting. I think not not least because you you might have a small firm of architects. Let's say there was a case where this man he's got a company. It's a small company. He's being sued. It's his money yeah. that's at risk. And I think that really brings home to you that um, people caught up in litigation can often be you know human beings, real human beings, not just big corporations. Um, and then a different type of mediation is that I've been involved with is an evaluative mediation. And um, the mediator on that was, I think, Rosemary Jackson QC. And she, I thought, did an amazing job. Uh, it was a hospital project. But uh, the first day was sort of hearing the evidence. And then she gave her view. And, and I think that's a very useful tool in helping parties to know how to uh, proceed in their own commercial discussions. Yes. Yeah. I think the very last one, because I realise that, again, I've run massively over to, on, on my projected time, which is so important in our role, which you also referenced, is actually narrowing the issues in joint statements. Yes. Which is such an important thing to do. And it's so nice and refreshing when you work, work with someone that's prepared to try and do that, rather than, rather than a counterpart who's just sticking to their guns and not prepared to enter into conversation. Yeah. I, I, I'm also, in, there's an issue about uh, procedural timetable and the sequence of activities. I'm personally a big fan of joint statements before report. Um, on the basis that if you write the reports first, you could write a very comprehensive and time-consuming section that the other chap says, yeah, I agree. And you've wasted all that, those fees for the client. So I, I think early joint statements are, are a good way of just flushing out the issues. And also, I think that if, as an expert, you do your report first before the joint statement, inevitably you've been directed to certain documents by your own party, and inevitably, there's going to be some documents that you haven't noticed, um, no matter how hard you try. It's just one of those things. And But once you've written your report, if then you receive the other person's report and you see, oh, no, there's a document I haven't seen, and that's going to fundamentally change my opinion, there's the risk of having egg on your face, so to speak, and, and having to row back. And there's, I think, a resistance I mean, among anybody to change their view, isn't there? Yep. So I think but if, on the other hand, you have the joint statement first, then it offers the opportunity in those expert meetings for one expert to say, well, these are the documents I've reviewed. Do you think this is the factual matrix? And for the other expert to say, well, actually, I've just come across this document. How do you consider this? And it then means that you can work through it and prepare a, a joint statement, then a report from a common set of documents. So there's less rowing back and that inherent inertia in the, uh, in the system. But I think that also, though, plays into the procedural timetables at the point at which you have full disclosure and you actually have the red fern schedules going. Because there seems to be a tendency of having first round of pleadings and you state same in the case, which sometimes will include an expert report as part of that. And then you have your round of um, document requests. So you find yourself drafting reports largely saying, I haven't seen these documents. I need I need this information to complete this analysis. I can't value this at the moment. We we need so I agree that the more you can have uh, opportunity to do to do the basics of the analysis, then you have a joint statement meeting. Make sure you're fleshing out what documents you're missing or what documents you need, and you have all the information available before you write reports. is is always a good way to go. Indeed, I think that the difficulty is though where you've got such a large dispute that there isn't time for the experts to properly get into the documents before preparing the joint statement. And the joint statement is either therefore incomplete or heavily caveated. 
So I think that again goes to having sensible timescales between witness statements, joint statements, reports, and, and so forth. Yes, definitely agreed. And I think on that note, having now put the world to rights and how we should structure timetables, um, I'd say thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking with you and, and, and thank you for joining me. Yeah, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you.